it's easy for young people today to feel powerless, and uh, that's that's not a pleasant feeling. We all know the negative power of peer pressure to get us to do things we don't want to do, uh, but we don't always recognize the po- our positive ability to bring out the best in one another. And when we have Anne's writings in school, her words in school, it's almost unique as far as I know in terms of a child who's represented in her own voice, getting to know her personally in her own words in the curriculum. Nowhere else do I remember in school anybody like that. You're listening to Seeking Refuge, a podcast sharing the human stories of refugees. Today we are continuing our conversation with the staff of the Anne Frank Center in Columbia, South Carolina. Our guest for today is Dr. Doyle Stevick. Doyle is the executive director of the Anne Frank Center and is a professor in the education department at the University of South Carolina. Your hosts for this week are me, Aidan Thomason, and I'm really excited to introduce our newest host, Anusha Ghosh. I think just to start off, could you just introduce yourself, explain who you are, your role here at the Anne Frank Center? Sure. So I'm Doyle Stevick, uh, D-O-Y-L-E-S-T-E-V-I-C-K. I'm the executive director of the Anne Frank Center. I'm also a professor, associate professor of educational leadership in the College of Education. So could you explain a little bit about your, um, your introduction to the Anne Frank Center and kind of your original idea behind having the center here? I was studying classics at Indiana University when one of my students turned out to have fallen in with a white supremacist group. Uh, And he um, decided that he should try to start a race war. Ended up shooting 11 people. And that shook up everything I thought I understood about education, about racism, and it started me trying to understand, you know, what kind of education do we need to provide to overcome these uh, prejudices to create a more inclusive society, a safer society? And that started a long journey. But uh, as I was in the process, I was working in Central and Eastern Europe, the lands where the Holocaust took place. And because they had been under Soviet rule for 50 years, they hadn't really dealt with the legacy of the Holocaust and the history Um, And there was still a fair amount of anti-Semitism. Well, one group was doing better work than anyone else I encountered, and that was the Anne Frank House. Uh, They had brilliant educators, and they knew how to come into a place and uh, get people's respect and work with them effectively and invite them to consider uh, re-examining their views in a productive way. That's not an easy thing to accomplish. Uh, but their methods were so compelling, I was hoping to bring those here to South Carolina. So we began touring our traveling exhibits in 2013. And just step by step, the uh, relationship grew. Uh, the university's partnership with the Anne Frank House expanded. Uh, the Anne Frank House director visited, got to know President Pastides. He went and had a private tour there. Uh, it put us in a place when uh, this idea was uh, ripe for uh, ripe for picking uh, in 2018 when this concept of uh, becoming the official partner of the Anne Frank House and opening a permanent exhibit on campus came up. So I was just wondering, you mentioned that you worked in Europe. Yeah. How does the perception of the Holocaust in Europe differ from that of the perception in the U.S. and South Carolina? 
It's a great question. So I lived in Estonia, and if you were a farmer in in a you know rural community in Estonia in the late 1930s, your experience of history might have looked like this: the Soviets invaded, took over your country. After a couple of years, the Nazis drove them out, but then the Soviets ended up winning, and you were under Soviet rule for 50 years. Well, if that's your free memory uh, going back to 1939 of how history unfolded and you know the terror of the Soviet Union from living in it for 50 years, it's easy to start to romanticize that three-year period when the Nazis drove the Soviets out and imagine that they were liberators. So if you didn't, through that period, get to learn about the Holocaust, if you didn't hear about survivors, if you only knew the Soviet crimes and not the Nazi crimes, that can produce a different way of understanding things. So there's a lot of uh, conversation and historical exploration that needs to happen to overcome that uh, ideological legacy of the of the communist bloc, and and that's just one example of the kinds of challenges that uh, that exist. So you were talking about the Anne Frank Center doing better work than a lot of other organizations. So could you kind of describe what they were doing that seemed um, to be working? Many organizations were coming in with experts to Central and Eastern Europe to tell them what to think and how to do everything. Uh, So that often wasn't received well. These were outsiders who didn't necessarily know and appreciate the history, the culture, the language. Uh, And so people dislike being told what to do and what to think. Uh, The Anne Frank House, on the other hand, they came in and they really got to know people, understand them, work with them and help them talk to one another about issues. And when you're dealing with Anne Frank, you have one individual's story. It's not something you necessarily fight over in some kind of loaded ideological way. It's just her own experience. Uh, And when you work from that, from sharing stories and experiences, you're able to have a different kind of conversation. Uh, The combination of the content and the approaches they took really did allow people to Um, get into difficult territory, think about things in a new way, uh, and uh, maintain uh, good relations across their differences. That's what Otto Frank really believed in and thought could happen, and uh, the people working there have found ways to do that. So that's part of what we're excited to keep going here. Kind of makes me think of what I really like about how the center here tells the story, Um, having heard a tour from both you and Diana before. that it kind of tells a story of something really big and macro that's talked about at the same time that it's talking about one specific family's experience within that. So I guess, could you kind of just expand on that storytelling model and why do you think it's effective, um, why you stand by that? That's exactly right. So the exhibit that was traveling and I first got to know was called Anne Frank, A History for Today. And it simultaneously tells the story of Anne and her family within the context of the rise of the Nazis, the uh, beginning of the World War and the Holocaust. And it helps to have, uh, to be able to see the forest and the trees at the same time. Because if you only have the political context, uh, you may not understand the human experience and what people endured in that process. Um, If you only have the human experience, you may lose uh, understanding of why it happened and why they were put into that situation. But bringing the two together, I think, helps us understand and appreciate both better. Uh, And it's really an inspiring model for me. 
Diana was talking to us and we want all our listeners to come and have a tour. So we don't want to give too much of the museum away. But when Diana was talking to us, she was telling us about kind of the Anne Frank family's story of trying to get out of Nazi Germany and ultimately being unable to get farther than the Netherlands. So could you kind of explain more of the macro, what was happening that was preventing them from leaving? Absolutely. So in 1900, there were about 8.9 million Jews in Europe. The Nazis murdered about 6 million of them. So if you were Jewish in Europe, you were more likely to be killed than to survive. Um, Some did by a combination of finding helpers, good fortune. Uh, So many stories of survival just seem miraculous to us today because they were simply so extraordinary. And you take somebody like Otto Frank. He was an industrious, intelligent, committed, insightful uh, person. And he had worked in the U.S. He spoke English. He had personal connections with powerful, wealthy people and family members in the U.S. Despite all of those advantages, he was unable to get his family to safety. That really tells us just what most people were up against when they uh, were confronted with the power of the Nazi regime and its collaborators. So within that context, why couldn't they come to the U.S.? In the aftermath of World War I, we implemented some immigration restrictions. And unfortunately, uh, at the time, there was uh, a feeling among those able to pass laws that some people were more desirable than others. And some of those considered uh, less desirable uh, are often perceived to be white today. But poor people from Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, the Mediterranean, more Jewish people, some Catholics and Slavic uh, peoples, um, were not welcomed in large numbers. You know, people from Britain were welcome, people from Asia much less so. The immigration restrictions that Doyle is referring to were instituted in the U.S. due to concerns about the sudden flood of refugees in the aftermath of World War I. In 1921, Congress passed a law that capped overall immigration, creating a quota system that limited how many immigrants would be allowed in from each foreign nation. In 1939, the quota allowed for 27,370 German citizens to immigrate to the U.S. In 1938, only a little over 20,000 applications were approved. In 1938, the year of Kristallnacht, more than 300,000 Germans, primarily Jewish refugees, applied for U.S. visas. However, only a little over 20,000 applications were approved. Additionally, the U.S. openly denied visas to any immigrants likely to become reliant on government assistance, further hindering Jewish refugees who had lost almost everything due to anti-Jewish decrees passed after the Nazis came to power. A bill was eventually introduced in Congress that would have admitted Jewish refugee children above the regular quota limits. However, President Roosevelt took no position on the bill, and it died in committee in the summer of 1939. This was probably in part due to the general American public's widespread opposition to taking in Jewish refugees, an opinion apparent in many polls of the time. Now back to Doyle. Uh, So with those restrictions in place, it became very difficult to... Uh, be able to come to the U.S., and uh, that was true around the world, too. Um, Hitler made clear that he didn't want uh, the Jews in Germany, uh, but very few countries uh, said, yes, we want them, we'll take them. And as a result, um, there were very few people who were able to uh, escape in the ways we hope they could as refugees with protection from other societies. The systematic persecution of Jewish individuals began almost as soon as Hitler came to power with the establishment of many anti-Jewish laws and decrees. 
These were introduced slowly to keep the civilian population from realizing the extent of the Nazi Party's anti-Semitism. For instance, in 1933, there were public burnings of books by Jews, anti-Nazis, and other individuals considered un-German. Police and courts no longer protected Jewish people, and the Department of Racial Hygiene was founded. Jewish students were excluded from exams in medicine and law, and Jews could no longer participate in the military. Mixed marriages between Jews and German Christians were forbidden, and in 1935, the Nuremberg Laws denied Jewish people basic civil rights. Soon they were denied voting rights and lost their German citizenship. Other senseless anti-Semitic actions ranged from forbidding Jews to own dogs, cats, and birds, to schools closing, to Jewish children being forced to give up fur coats and woolen items. I was working the summer on a project. It became apparent how something like the Holocaust is happens by people being willing to make single systemic decisions. So like making sure that Germans and Jews can't marry and then making sure that Jewish property is confiscated. So when they're trying to flee, they don't have the ability to. So things like that. Could you kind of maybe ex- expand on how that relates to what ended up happening and then also kind of how we think about the Holocaust? That's right. Once people are being rounded up, it's often too late to do much. If you're sitting in your window and you see an armed brigade taking Jews from their homes, as many people did, uh, by then it's too late. Uh, Deborah Lipstadt, the famous historian who will be here speaking later this month, um, said uh, the time to stop a genocide is before it starts. And it starts with words. And so Uh, When we have opportunities to interrupt these kinds of things, that's our obligation to do so. Uh, Now, the question of small decisions contributing gets at the issue of complicity. So who was responsible for what was done? Um, At one level, you can point to the fact that the Nazis came to power through a democratic system and then uh, gained dictatorial powers. Well, in free elections, they typically got no higher than 32% of the vote, once got 37% of the vote. So it's somewhat reassuring that to know that uh, typically two-thirds of people were voting against the Nazis for other parties. Uh, but that wasn't enough. Six million people were murdered. And if you think about the number of people it took to carry that out, Um, There were 43,000 camps where people were held, arrested, uh, transported. You had to have the people who conducted the arrests, who figured out where they were, who guarded the jails, who had the transportation running, who ran the trains, who ran the camps. Were there a half million people directly involved in rounding up and murdering six million people? Was it a million, two million people? That's a million or two million people directly involved in murder and many others that uh, helped to allow them to get in that place. Uh, So there was certainly widespread uh, culpability in in the Holocaust. And uh, we have to be careful not to say that the Holocaust happened because Hitler hated the Jews. Uh, Hitler hated the Jews, and that message resonated with a lot of people. And that's uh, how so many people bear responsibility for what occurred. So I know um, you and Diana kind of focus a little bit in different ways on um, approaching the tour. So Diana really focuses on um, Anne Frank's life and then expanding out from there. And I've noticed that when I've spoken to you, you focus a lot on like the systems and how it impacted them. So could you kind of, I guess, talk about how your like work and teaching styles go together while you're working on this project? Sure. 
our staff have a range of different expertise and bring it to their own tours, and that's really gratifying. So Diana, for example, uh, is encyclopedic of her knowledge of Anne, and she worked at the Anne Frank House for three years. That's really where her expertise is. Uh, Chris has spent years working on the Holocaust itself and anti-Semitism, so he brings that expertise. Um, I've been working here in South Carolina for 15 years, so I've been very attentive to the ways in which um, the aftermath of the Holocaust led to some things uh, starting to change in our own society. So the pathways out of the Holocaust as survivors came to this region, as black soldiers returned from the war uh, and stood up and helped the civil rights movement get traction, as the whole ideology of racism and eugenics was discredited, uh, these things all helped to put us on the route to dismantling some of our own legal um, pro aspects of uh, racism, like the fact that the army was still segregated uh, until 1948, uh, the, the segregation of schools until 1954, and the uh, bans against interracial marriage until 1967. Uh, so these histories are intertwined in complex ways, both before and after. And I think bringing the, some of those aspects to the surface is part of what I hope that um, we can help visitors appreciate. Elaborating on what you're just talking about, your work experience is, how does South Carolina relate to the Holocaust? Because it seems a lot, a lot of times people are kind of like, oh, that seems odd that the Anne Frank Center's North American partner is um, in Columbia, South Carolina. but I don't think it is that odd, and I don't think you would say mm -hmm. it's that odd, but can you kind of explain those connections? We're very fortunate that the Anne Frank House picked the University of South Carolina to be its official American partner and home for the only partner site in North America. And it could have gone almost anywhere it wants as such a world-famous institution. Uh, but it was a long process. We built up the relationships. We did the work. We did the work well. We had um, Otto Frank's stepdaughter uh, come to speak here about four years ago, and President Pastides interviewed her. Um, and that event was so powerful and went so well that the Anne Frank House uh, called the next day, delighted by what they heard, and uh, invited me to Amsterdam to talk about a deeper partnership. So when she came, we brought in 2,000 school students um, and they got to hear her speak. And these are students who were probably born around 2005. They could live to 2095 and be 90 years old and uh, 150 years after the Holocaust be able to tell grandchildren. I heard Anne Frank's posthumous stepsister speak in person and I've got her book. Um, thanks to a grant from the Anita Zucker Family Foundation, we were able to give a copy of her autobiography to all 2,000 students in attendance. So knowing that uh, we were able uh, in one day to have that kind of impact on young people in South Carolina uh, has been really exciting. And, and it's that kind of um, committed, powerful work that we've been doing for years that inspired the house to uh, entrust us with this legacy. I think the kind of like the other part of that question that I wanted to ask is like, what are some of the historical connections of our region with this history? South Carolina has a long and rich Jewish history. Uh, that history uh, was further enriched when refugees came from Germany. Uh, as um, the Nazis ramped up their persecutions, about 400,000 people, uh, Jewish people, left Germany 
looking for new places to live. Some came to South Carolina. The survivors in particular uh, ended up settling in many parts of South Carolina and have been a uh, critical part of the Jewish community. Uh, the children of survivors have played important roles in founding and running institutions like the uh, South Carolina Council on the Holocaust. And um, altogether, these, uh, these contributions help to uh, make South Carolina a better place. Uh, so we're, we're fortunate to have them. As Doyle stated, South Carolina has a rich Jewish history, one that dates back as long as the state itself has existed. South Carolina's economic opportunities and impressive degree of religious tolerance in the 1600s pulled Jewish people to the British colony. In 1749, Charleston's Jewish community chartered one of the first five Jewish congregations in America. By 1800, Charleston was home to the largest, wealthiest, and most cultured Jewish community in North America, involving one-fifth of all the Jewish people in the nation. This community produced the first movement to reform Judaism in America. By World War I, Jewish communities in the Midlands and upcountry had grown large enough to support synagogues. As a result of the Holocaust, America became home to more than half of all Jewish people. South Carolina was a microcosm of the nation in many ways. The class of Jewish merchants had brought a generation of lawyers, doctors, accountants, and professors, shifting the economic niche away from retail. In 1989, the South Carolina Council on the Holocaust was created to provide educational programs about the Holocaust to help prevent such atrocities from occurring again. The council works to honor survivors of the Holocaust and camp liberators who call South Carolina home. In 2018, South Carolina became the first U.S. state to adopt a standard definition of anti-Semitism. This definition, covering harassment, assault, and vandalism, was added as a proviso to South Carolina's annual budget. I know you've been talking about it being a really long process to get this center built. So what's been the payoff of that? What's the reception been like since the center's been open? The feedback we've been receiving is just so heartwarming. Um, for me, uh, I was most uh, concerned, first of all, with how the community rabbis would respond to it. And they would sometimes come after a long day of work, arriving 7.30 in the evening and stay nearly two and a half hours. Uh, they've been so positive and supportive. That's really been gratifying. Next was the children of survivors. Uh, when they came and uh, just responded so favorably and warmly and supportively, uh, that told me we were really on the right track. Uh, the third group that's really been special here has been all the U101 instructors. So we've been committed to trying to reach every undergraduate we can, starting with the U101 program. And I started by welcoming about 60 of the U101 instructors, and uh, their feedback was just uh, overwhelmingly positive. Uh, from there, we've been welcoming students and, um, and members of the public whenever we can get spaces between the U101 tours. Uh, they've also been uh, very, very positive and supportive. So knowing that people are finding this work meaningful, that's, uh, that's very gratifying and encouraging for us. Throughout your entire experience at the AFC, uh, what would you say is like the kind of tourists that come through the center? Like what communities or cultures do they come from and how does their background influence their perception of the Holocaust of the AFC when they take a tour? Yeah, terrific question. We haven't had much public visitation yet to uh, be able to answer that fully since we've only really opened our doors to the public in the last few weeks. But what's amazing to me, spending time in Amsterdam at the Anne Frank House itself, is just the cross-section of people from all over the world who show up and who tour there. 
I remember meeting uh, a man who uh, translated the diary of Anne Frank into Dari, which was one of the languages of Afghanistan. And he would travel around Afghanistan with these translations of the diary to take to girls' schools. Um, and one story I was told about him was he was driving his uh, car through the mountains and, um, you know, the car broke down and he had to carry these diaries in a suitcase, in suitcases, so he didn't lose them. In the course of that, uh, he got frostbite and lost his toes, lugging copies of the diary to share with girls in Afghanistan. This story seems to resonate all over the globe in powerful ways, and um, and they make the trek, uh, those who can, to Amsterdam to um, see where she did her writing. So I know in our past interview, Diana mentioned a link between Martin Luther King and Anne Frank because they were both born during the same year, and they both face discrimination. I was just wondering, at the AFC, if you have, what other human rights or political events have you interacted with? Wherever we have the exhibit, it ends up in dialogue with local history. And that's because those are the experiences people bring to the table and the lenses they use to see. One of the fascinating things when German Jewish professors who were refugees came to work at historically black colleges and universities, if they were in small towns where nobody had ever met a Jewish person, the local people used their own lenses to try to figure out who they were. And they were asking, are they white people or are they black people? And they didn't fit easily into that box. But it didn't stop people from trying to put them in those boxes. And only a few were able to step back and say, hey, maybe there's something wrong with our lenses that we have to reexamine. Maybe our boxes aren't quite right. So these are aspects of history that we can use to draw connections and just show parallels. So there's no causal link uh, necessarily between the population of African Americans in 1900, which was 8.8 million and concentrated in the South, and the fact that the Jewish population of Europe was concentrated in Poland and Eastern Europe and numbered about 8.9 million. But those coincidences of the similar numbers uh, help us remember both. And the regional concentration has different causes, but being able to acknowledge those coincidences can also invite us to consider some of the issues uh, underneath them. And that's where having histories and dialogue can be very productive. This is my last question, I promise. Sure. Uh, so the Holocaust was a major global event that displaced a lot of people and produced a lot of refugees. Um, I was just wondering, like, what other refugee events are similar to the Holocaust that you can think of? Like, what connections could they have? Well, the Holocaust was, as the state-organized attempt to murder every single person, every single Jewish person in Europe, unprecedented in that nature and uh, really unique in that element. Uh, so there aren't parallels um, in that sense that are so deep, but the, the number of people displaced from violence, from genocide all over the world is extraordinary. And when David Beasley was here, he accepted the Nobel Peace Prize. He was South Carolina's governor. And he spoke here recently, and he is running the World Food Program. And he said they feed 130 million people a day with the World Food Program. There are a lot of people in vulnerable positions right now for a lot of reasons. 
and, and the scale of the challenges people are facing right now is just so large as to be hard to comprehend. Uh, but uh, it, it's wonderful for all of us that uh, people like David Beasley are out there trying to make a difference for for those people. And I'm always afraid that when we acknowledge the scale of the problem, we can be deterred from acting. But every every meal feeds somebody. So the little things we do add up. Uh, I can't solve world hunger, but I can make a contribution, and we all can. And if we all contribute together, then we can really produce some positive change for people who need it. I think kind of going off of that, what do you, and we've kind of been getting at this the whole time. So what do you think the importance of continuing to teach Holocaust history in the present and specifically teaching um, Anne's legacy? Otto Frank said that uh, it's important we learn not just history lessons, but the lessons of history too. Part of what we try to do is learn about the Holocaust and learn from the Holocaust. These are important things to do in part because uh, the Holocaust in some ways functions like a, a capstone topic for students. It doesn't fit easily into the curriculum because it's so complex, so difficult. It's hard to race through it in two or three days in a history course and feel that you've done it justice. In, in fact, when you study the Holocaust, what you're dealing with is just a profound assault on the truth. From before the Nazis were around, uh, there's a long history of anti-Semitism, religious anti-Semitism, terrible violence against Jews, especially in Central and Eastern Europe. Before the Nazis came along, about 150,000 Jews were murdered in pogroms. And it was based on these uh, lies, these anti-Semitic lies. Well, you pile that on with conspiracy theories, and that's what the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was, a document that has been translated and uh, believed in all over the world is just an utter uh, nonsense forgery, but more lies. And then when the Nazis come along, you have you know, the application of propaganda to an extreme degree. You've got indoctrination and just open lies. And when they started to lose the wars, they tried to destroy the evidence, blow up camps and gas chambers and conceal what they'd done. And when they weren't successful after the Holocaust, you had a whole movement of Holocaust denial on top of it. So almost unique to any subject I've seen has been just a pervasive assault on truth from beginning to end. So we need to deal with it with care, with depth, and consider the evidence for what happened because... If we don't produce a culture of evidence, convince people to ask, well, how do we know? Um, then the deniers will have as much persuasive ability as the people telling the truth. We need people to be able to navigate between the lies and the truth and asking, well, how do we know is the surest course to point them in the right direction. So Anne, a lot of quotes from her diary are very focused on making the world a better place. I remember there's one, and I know I'm misquoting it, but where she was basically saying, I don't understand why people are so bad and allow bad things to continue, why people are allowed to go hungry and cold. So what do you think, how do you think Anne would approach understanding that, that they're different than what specifically happened to her family? How do you think she would approach human rights violations that we see today? Mm-hmm. Well, Anne was a refugee. She lost her German citizenship, had to move to a new country to survive. And then 
when the threat followed her to the Netherlands, had to go into hiding. So she became completely dependent on the goodwill of a handful of people to supply them with food, to keep them apprised of what was happening, to help keep their spirits up. So she knew that action was urgent, action was essential, and upstanders are absolutely critical. Now, part of the challenge is that there were many heroic individuals in the era of the Holocaust and saved many lives. And even though Anne's life wasn't saved, they did manage to protect her for two years, which um, was an achievement given all the challenges they faced. Um, a tragic ending, but a committed noble effort. The problem is there simply were not enough upstanders, and there never will be. It's simply too frightening to rely on a handful of heroic individuals to make the difference we need in society. Instead, we have to confront the fact that we need a moral consensus together, that we have to stand up together, because it's hard to swim upstream. But if we all agree that we need to stand up together, then it gets a little easier, because you know that if you stand up, I've got your back, and I know if I stand up, you've got mine. And we agree that we should stand up together then we're not swimming upstream anymore. Then we are the stream. And if we can achieve that moral consensus, then that's a cultural change. And I think that's what we need to achieve what we need to achieve. We need to build a community of upstanders. And I think Anne's insights help us appreciate just why that's so critical. Yeah, that was something we talked about with Diana at one of our training sessions where we looked at a bunch of quotes from Anne and we're looking at all of the different hats that she wore in her writing, even just as a, a 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, mm. all of the different ways that she was thinking. Her writing was really just transcendent. That's why it's lasted for so many decades. But That's right. I guess just my final question to you would just be, do you have any other thoughts or any things you'd like to share that we haven't already talked about? Sure. It's easy for young people today to feel powerless, and uh, that's, that's not a pleasant feeling. We all know the negative power of peer pressure to get us to do things we don't want to do, uh, but we don't always recognize the po our positive ability to bring out the best in one another. And when we have Anne's writings in school, her words in school, it's almost unique as far as I know in terms of a child who's represented in her own voice, getting to know her personally in her own words in the curriculum. Nowhere else do I remember in school anybody like that. I wish we got to know Emmett Till personally the way we get to know Anne. But when you listen to Anne and hear her, you realize that we do have the power to make a positive difference and it doesn't have to wait till later in life. We don't need an official position. Our actions matter right now. Our words matter right now. Uh, and Anne helps us appreciate that. So I, I hope that people's encounters with Anne are um, profoundly empowering because I think that's part of what she'd love to see as part of her legacy. That was Dr. Doyle Stevick, the Executive Director of the Anne Frank Center in Columbia, South Carolina. The AFC's website is linked in our show notes if you'd like to learn more or take a tour. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com or sosrpa at mailbox.sc.edu. 
you can find us on social media at Refuge Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.